I think there's some interesting and striking parallels between Musk and Twitter and Bezos buying the Washington Post. Well, I think the automation that is coming at us will, in fact, disrupt society. And I am hoping that we, as a society, are taking steps to make sure that transition goes smoothly. From Orion X, in association with Inside HPC, this is the At HPC podcast. Join Shaheen Khan and Doug Black as they discuss supercomputing technologies and the applications, markets, and policies that shape them. Thank you for being with us. Hey, Shaheen. Great to be with you again. Great to be here, Doug. How are you? Not a very news-rich week it was, was it? No, not really. Although there was one very interesting possible revelation having to do with the Sunway Taiyulite supercomputer in China. Right. So we're launching into our top of the news then. Yes, we are. There's been, for years now, speculation on where is China on exascale. They don't participate in the top 500. Now, the Sunway system is number four in the world, according to the last list. But what they are saying about the power, the throughput of that system hasn't changed in six years, I believe. Well, it all started with SC21 when David Conner and then the Gordon Bell Prize paper put that on the map. And at the time, the talk was that there are three systems, two that are squarely in the exascale realm, and then a third one that might be coming. And Sunway Ocean Light was the one that was mentioned to be one and a half exaflops of 64-bit performance peak. And presumably it was going to get something like 79% efficiency to deliver an exaflop HPL, Limpac benchmark. And Tiani 3 was the second one that was built at probably 1.7 exaflops with 76% efficiency, providing 1.3 exaflops of Limpac performance. Neither of these numbers were submitted they did not participate. The system architecture is to this day not quite so well known. They have provided some information on the CPUs and the node structure, but really not too much of the detail. So what's happened was two weeks ago, papers emerged, put together by university researchers in China, purporting that 40 million cores of the SW26010 Pro cores were directed at what's called a quantum many-body problems, which are defined as pertaining to the properties of microscopic systems made of many interacting particles, meaning problems of huge complexity and size. I think that's their domestically designed and produced chip, and therefore its architecture has not been disclosed in detail, if I'm not mistaken. That's right. But nevertheless, it's, it's obviously a giant system because whereas, for example, Cerebras has a wafer scale chip that gives them 850,000 cores per one of those platters. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah, dinner plates. Yeah, so you could put a bunch of those boxes together and rapidly get to about 40 million cores. (laughs) That's Mm -hmm. still a lot of boxes. If you step back, I think China is investing and it's investing in PhDs, papers, and performance, the way I call it. And in addition to the two or three top sites that they're working on, they've got tens of large petaflop systems of various stripes around the country. Mm -hmm. So they're definitely building the supercomputing infrastructure in the country. But I wish they would participate more and they would disclose more of what they're doing. As you know, I've been a broken record on why we should all participate with Top 500 and make sure that that vast body of data allows us to 
analyze things better and get a deeper understanding. What I've found a lot of fun, or at least very interesting, is the speculation as to why China is not being open about where it is with its peak supercomputers. And the two most popular theory is that they don't want to provoke us in our ongoing trade war, if you will, with China. So they're concealing those numbers. The other possibility is that they're actually behind us and they're embarrassed to admit it. But I think (laughs) the more widely held opinion is that they don't want to provoke us by showing their superiority, possibly. Well, I think if you are in the midst of trade negotiations and tariffs and such, you don't want to you don't want to add to the intensity of the discussions by bragging about something <laughs> that your negotiator is holding dear. However, it is also true that these systems, based on the architecture that has been disclosed, don't appear to be as general purpose, so to say, as the equivalent systems that are done in the US and certainly not as general purpose as Fugaku is in Japan. I think Fugaku is the gold standard when it comes to that. Now, these supercomputers, by definition, require a supercomputing application to perform Mm -hmm. so well, unless you go CPU only, and there are several examples of those. But as you add accelerators and vector extensions and GPUs and specialized GPUs, and as you compromise the ratio of compute performance to memory bandwidth, that ratio, the higher it goes, the less general purpose you are. And these systems, at some point, you're just building a Limpack machine that may not be good for a whole lot of different apps. Yeah, as almost a stunt system. Yeah, a benchmark machine. And these aren't exactly that, but I think they're way closer to a benchmark machine than the kind of system that is being done in the US and certainly not anywhere close to Fugaku. Yeah. And the other possibility, our friends over at The Next Platform put out a very interesting piece last November in which they talked about another revelation about Sunway and its performance. But folks in the US, their observation was that the exercise was kind of tailored down to kind of gin up very high performance numbers from the Sunway system. So who knows if that'll emerge in this quantum many body run that Sunway had. Yeah, actually the other notable thing is that the paper at SC21 also had to do with quantum computing and quantum simulation. Mm -hmm. This was a redoing of the quantum supremacy application that Google and NASA and Oak Ridge had done a few years ago. And they got it to go a lot faster, but it still kind of had a quantum flavor. And this one is also quantum many-body simulation. So I wonder if there's any alignment between these research applications and their efforts on quantum computing, which are also significant, because they also have done quite a bit with photonics and with superconducting elements over there. Yeah, so a lot to unpack here. Now, I want to use this to put a plug for a paper I wrote back in 1992, it was, where we proposed a metric where the numerator was a figure of merit for the system. And that was the ratio of flops per second divided by memory bandwidth, megabytes per second. And then the denominator was the requirement of the application. And it was the ratio of the number of bytes moved to the number of floating point operations performed on those bytes. So that was a measure of compute intensity of the application. And if you have that ratio, you'll get a dimensionless quantity if you do it right. And that can be a relatively good first pass metric. So if you're doing a matrix multiply, that's a really well-behaved application. If you're doing 2D convolution, that's even better behaved application. If you're doing FFTs, well, it's not so much. And conjugate gradient, it's not so much. Mm -hmm. So there's some way of trying to put your arms around what kind of a system you're dealing with. Yeah, great stuff. 
Okay, there was another piece of news this week, not momentous, but noteworthy. A company called CGG, it's a geoscience company, is expanding its HPC capacity in the UK by up to 100 petaflops. Right. I thought that was pretty interesting too. CGG is a French company, but a storied past because it includes companies from Canada and Calgary area where the oil patches to Norway and of course also France. And they've been a pretty well-known name in the geophysics services business and was significant to me that they're expanding the UK base even after Brexit and just goes to show you the momentum of these technologies stay. Whenever I see news like that, I remember distinctly when I first got into the HPC industry in the early 90s, it was said at that point that the UK had roughly the supercomputing capacity of Mexico and they've really embraced it. There's all kinds of exciting, interesting stuff happening in the UK that we keep seeing. Yes, they've got such critical mass of higher education and research with places like Oxford and Cambridge and Imperial and Bath and others. And you go up to Scotland, the Edinburgh Supercomputing Center has been a mainstay for a long time, also in Ireland. So that whole region of the world is pretty formidable in its capabilities. Okay, why don't we move on to our last topic, which we might be self-indulgent enough to move, looking at the future and, and trends and so forth and so on. But I, I thought it was it's very interesting that Musk is trying to buy Twitter, and maybe by the time this podcast comes out, he will have pulled it together. But I think there's some interesting and striking parallels between Musk and Twitter and Bezos buying the Washington Post. And as I see things, you know, when you have these visionary entrepreneurs who seem to have the seer kind of abilities, when they've amassed enough of a fortune for both of them, tech-driven fortunes, and you could say HPC AI technology heavily involved. But I think there's a natural tendency for players like that to move into media, to the control of information and the shaping of public perceptions is a super potent form of power. And it seems to be a natural evolution for people like that. Well, I think if part of the discussion leads us to conclude that the future of information technology is HPC, well, then I'm in violent agreement, as you know. I've been saying that for decades, and I think that is unmistakably true in my mind. And as you scale these technologies with information technology, and as you have tech-driven hyperscale and massive growth, then becomes indistinguishable from HPC. And then going forward, it's just going to be more algorithmic, more physics-based, more an attempt to really get to the reality of nature. And all of that leads to HPC. So in that sense, I'm in complete agreement. Yeah. I think a, a topic that has kind of fallen by the wayside to a degree, certainly relative to, I remember the summer of 2017, Shaheen, such a hot topic was AI, super AI, moving into the automation of what are livelihoods for tens of millions of people, eliminating that work. In fact, I remember writing a piece in which AI experts from around the world were polled on when certain types of work would be automated. One of them was that the conclusion was that the creation of pop songs would be automated before there's autonomous trucks, <laughs> I believe so. I, uh, but in any case, um, to me, the, you know, a dystopic trend could be that emerges is with the automation of work, the elimination of jobs, especially lower skill, lower income jobs. This could move toward mass unemployment and idleness. And a lot of that is driven by folks like Musk and Bezos who really know how to harness 
supercomputing HPC combined with AI. Where that leaves us, I think is going to be a big, big question. Well, I think the automation that is coming at us will, in fact, disrupt society. And I am hoping that we as a society are taking steps to make sure that transition goes smoothly because there's no guarantee that it will go smoothly. Now, I also think that automation is going to be indiscriminate. It's going to automate things that are automatable. And some low-skilled works actually aren't so automatable, like tri-folding laundry. Man, you know, when AI does that, let me know. That's a robot I will buy when it's available. But it's like such a difficult thing to just like go through that process. And then there are things that you would wish one could automate, like politics. (laughs) (laughs) But yes. then that also is like pretty, pretty complicated. So I think it's coming and I think it's a flood that's going to keep rising and it behooves us to have policies in place that take us through that transition in an orderly way and make sure that we have the cake and eat it too. Because the future obviously is very exciting and it's better quality of life for everyone, but the transition to the future can be painful and that pain can and should be avoided. And again, I think the Bezos and Musks of the world are part of this power elite of technology elites. They really understand this technology. They know how to use it. It is going to be directed at automation of forms of labor. So it could exacerbate trends that are already giving us trouble, such as income inequality. Yeah, well, in fact, corporations as a whole, the world over, have a lot of power and can be represented as another branch of the government, so to say, because they hold so much sway. Now, some of the members of those corporations, like the names you've mentioned, are especially good at being in the limelight. They are especially good at being in the news. And in that sense, they become no different than other celebrities. And one of the problems with celebrities is that they get looked upon for things that may not, in fact, be their area of expertise. And that is a problem. I think that we need to be careful that we go to folks for things that they actually know about and have a valid viewpoint and not just because they are a celebrity. Well, it's interesting where Musk is concerned because I do recall summer of 2017, he stated that AI is a huge cultural, social, and economic threat. He said, it scares me, and et cetera, et cetera. But we all know that he's his embrace of technology, his car factories are highly automated. He's using it wherever he can use it <laughs> to, to control his operational costs. So it's kind of an interesting dichotomy there. I think it's just part of the phase we're in, in the evolution of the world economy as it transitions to more of an AI-based, information-based economy, data economy, the digital twin and the metaverse and Web3 and all these other trends are indications of that. In fact, one question that I often ask is that how come we've got so many megatrends suddenly between IoT and 5G and HPC and AI and quantum and cryptocurrencies and robotics and bioinformatics, et cetera, et cetera. And I think part of it is because we are, in fact, in a phase change. We are, in fact, in a period where lots of fundamental change is happening. And again, it's exciting, but we have to manage the transition. And I'm hoping that that takes place. Yeah. I mean, the future ain't what it used to be, as they say. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) uh, And I have heard the observation that a new technology that bursts on the scene, it really takes about 20 years for it to be incorporated into business and really start to make a change. And maybe that's what we're seeing with AI. Yeah. All right, Gene. great to be with you. Thanks so much. Yeah, good, good session here. Thank you. That's it for this episode of the At HPC podcast. 
Every episode is featured on InsideHPC.com and posted on OrionX.net. Use the comment section or tweet us with any questions or to propose topics of discussion. If you like the show, rate and review it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. The At HPC Podcast is a production of OrionX in association with Inside HPC. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening.